December 25th and 26th, 1776. George Washington crossed the Delaware River, fought the Battle of Trenton. Pretty significant battle. About a year later, 1777, December 19th, the army went to Valley Forge. 11,000 men were there. 3,000 didn't have shoes. 2,000 deserted the army. But because of their devotion to liberty, because of their devotion to their leader, George Washington, and a few other aspects, not least of which likely Baron von Steuben's training of the officers and men, they stuck it out. Hundreds died of disease, famine, and so forth. They lived through the winter in lean-tos made of brush and other things from trees. Very difficult to watch, I'm sure. And not terribly unlike the situation that Judah and the city of Jerusalem was enduring as Jeremiah was writing his Lamentations. So the book of Lamentations, five chapters, all poetry. Today we're looking at chapter 3, which is certainly the turning point of what it is that Jeremiah is being used of the Lord to draw out for the people. And so Jeremiah certainly saw in his day his countrymen and his country reject God over and over again. He saw the land raised, he saw crops robbed, he saw nation after nation besiege city after city. He had seen merciless destruction, he saw the shameless debauchery of the people, unspeakable deprivation, starvation resulting in people doing unthinkable things. Yet Jeremiah would not give up. He will not write his country or his countrymen off as he cries out in lamentation to God. He calls them to repentance and faith. He calls them to honestly examine themselves. He urges them to allow the Word of God to do its work. He calls upon them to wait on God, not to flee from Him or fight against him. Sobering words. Jeremiah is attempting to over and over again to cast the thoughts of himself and his countrymen upon the immovable and kindly and steadfast loving God. And that's certainly a good admonition for us today. Jeremiah chapter 3 is 66 verses. As you might recall, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. It is uh, an acrostic poem. Each uh, three verses begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we see that Jeremiah has written a poem here in our chapter 3 that we'll look at today. And I'd like to draw your attention really to two primary ideas that we see in, in this. First of all is simply the situation as Jeremiah sees it. He He reveals to us and shows us in perhaps uh, heart-wrenching detail what things were like on the ground, as it were, for the nation of Judah, for the city of Jerusalem. But then also, secondly, he casts our thoughts upon the omnipotent, omnipresent God, the all-powerful, all-loving God, this This God who was always with them, but that insists that 
relief will come as they look to Him, as they walk in His ways. And uh, so, not, of course, a demand for perfection, but certainly a command of the Lord to recognize that because of who He is, and because of what He is, and because of who they are, that they must walk with Him, and that that's the only way to peace and to joy. And it, in fact, that certainly is true of us today, is it not? And So, what we see here, the course, is uh, something that we sang about in our last hymn, something that we read about in the little letter of 1 John here together, and something that we see here in this chapter in the book of Lamentations. Now, one of the things that I'd like to draw out to you, not only these two heads, if you will, of this passage of Scripture, uh, we have, again, this idea, what's the situation? What's this, what do they feel? What do things look like to them? What, what are the sensories? What are the, the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the touches, these sorts of things that, that Jeremiah is getting at? But also, what's happening spiritually to them? What, is it, what does it feel like to them to endure this? And so you see in the poem, the idea is like, God, is you've laid this upon us. You've made our burden heavy. You have not forgiven. And that was, uh, that was a sensory idea that they had. And we can all relate to this. Is that's what it feels like to wait on God. But that doesn't mean He hasn't forgiven you. That doesn't mean that God has looked the other way. But it does mean that God will continue to insist that you follow Him. This week, associated with my own preparation, I've read through, or really begun to read, if you will, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And in The Cost of Discipleship, perhaps the most noteworthy quote in that entire book is simply this, When God calls a man, He bids him come and die. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, what did Bonhoeffer mean? Certainly, Bonhoeffer died as a martyr to the faith. But what we see here is Jeremiah being used of God to call his countrymen to recognize that they must die to themselves if they would follow the Lord. They must die to themselves. In order to die to themselves. And then, and then what happens is they delight themselves in the things of God, walking with God and the people of God and the Word of God. As we just read about in the letter of 1 John. What are the indications of life? What are the, what's the fruit of the life that we have? A love for God, a love for His Word, and a love for His people. That can only come through Christ. Through life given through uh, to us through our union with the Lord Jesus and in the process of walking with Him. And so, Jeremiah bids the same thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer does. Would this be the year that you die? Not physically, but spiritually, such that you can enjoy life in Christ not only in its initial aspect of justification in the Lord Jesus Christ, but by walking with Him. 
And so that's the question that Jeremiah presents to his people. And what he affirms is that often there are three different responses to the proclamation of the Word of God. Particularly in this area of a call to repentance, of a call to examine oneself that's absolutely present here in chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah will call out, and we can easily recognize on the surface of the text, something that we are all familiar with. And that is a simple response to difficulty or challenge. And that's the response of fighting, of fleeing, or freezing. Fight, flee, or freeze. Now, there are certainly occasions, and we'll look at passages of Scripture, that would draw our attention to do each one of those three things. But we don't do all of those things for every event in our lives. And Jeremiah is absolutely calling upon the people of God in response to the declaration, the admonition of God to examine themselves and to repent of their sins and to turn. It is not to fight or to flee but to freeze, as it were. In other words, to submit themselves to God. And that's what Jeremiah calls us to do here in Lamentations chapter 3, is to take inventory, examine ourselves all the while being still and waiting on God. Not sleeping, but actively waiting on the Lord in order to do what? To step into the action of obedience. Not of fleeing, not of fighting. And so that's what Jeremiah is calling us to here today. I draw your attention to Jeremiah chapter, excuse me, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1 here. And let's look at the situation at hand. We'll look at the first 18 verses of this passage. Uh, you, you heard in your, your hearing, verses 20 through 40. But I'd like to begin today with the situation here in Jerusalem. And that situation is described in the first 18 verses, at least. And what do we see here? What, is, what does this feel like to Jeremiah? What, what are the sensories of This lament as he again watches over the ruins of Jerusalem and doesn't write his nation off. This is the situation on the ground. They sense that they're under the rod of God's wrath. And you'll notice in this passage that all of these things are not attributed to a wicked nation who sacked them. And that's actually absolutely what happened. God uses pagan nations to bring about uh, the judgment upon His people. And that's part of the aspect of the lamentation. How many of us are upset because we hear or we are corrected by or we are brought to a recognition of our own sinfulness by people who are imperfect and ungodly? And we, what do we want to do? We want to say, God, what about them? And God says, no. This is your story. And that's what we're talking about today. And so we see in this passage, obviously, this God-centric view. But also, we see also a person-centric view as well in other parts, other verses here in chapter 3. But we begin with this God-centric view. They sense that they're under the rod of God's wrath in verse 1. 
They sense that they're driven into darkness by God in verse 2. Verse 3, that God's hand is turned against them all day long. Verse 4, they see physical depravity. They're wasting away. Again, don't miss the source of this. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 5, He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. They take no comfort in second causes. They're recognizing that God is the source of the good and the bad in their lives and that He is a purposeful God and that His intent is always restoration. His intent is always a longing for them to delight themselves in following Him. But this is, again, the situation on the ground. They are besieged with bitterness and tribulation, verse 5. God has made him to dwell in darkness. He feels that God has confined him with no way of escape in verse 7. Seclusion in a confined space. You ever been in the dark? I mean really dark. No way out. Danger on every side. This is the way that Jeremiah felt. The the common illustration of our worst nightmares seemed to be here in this description of what was happening in Jerusalem. Because God God sometimes holds us in dispense. Verse 8, Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. This is what it felt like. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, as recorded in verse 9, that God has blocked your way of escape? Verse 12, He has bent His bow. He has set me as a target for His arrow. Do you ever feel that way? God, can you go look at someone else today? Can you go upbraid someone else's sins today? Can you go declare the truths of your word in some other place today? But again, we see that Jeremiah is describing the full, if you will, fury, as it seems, of God's arrows. Well, perhaps we should ask ourselves the question. Do you not want to be drawn to follow the Lord? Do you only want to be an almost Christian? Verse 17, I've forgotten what happiness is. Verse 14 reveals that he felt that he was the laughingstock because there were many who scoffed at people that were following the Lord. They were simply making fun of them. They had already, it seems, thoroughly rejected God 
and His ways. Verse 18, My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. A bleak picture. Our own lives reveal that we have thought thoughts like this before and certainly been far, far away from the challenges and tribulation that Judah endured at the hands of Babylon and Assyria. But nonetheless, we can argue, of course, from our own lesser to this greater that God is yet there for us. This suffering is a result of the judgment of God appointed by God for the express purpose of bringing them back to Himself. Most in Jeremiah's day, not subdued by suffering. They didn't turn to God. They didn't recognize the chastening hand of God. And they even scoffed at His correction. They scoffed at the humility revealed in verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. Why don't we repent? Because we're too proud. We don't like humility. It turns out that human nature is fixated on ourselves. We're self-absorbed. We think somehow that we're different, right? That God has somehow missed the shining star that we are. What did they do? Some fled to Egypt. Others were taken involuntarily, as was Jeremiah. There seemed to be no break in the judgment. All day, darkness, besieged with tribulation, a wasting away, continual scoffing from those who reject God. That's the situation. Wow. Think of it. Appreciate that hymn history that we heard today. The 30 years war was no picnic. And to think about the same thing occurred in that day as well. Some fled, obviously some died. No doubt many fought against that which they should have fought for. But there were certainly some who stayed. When we encounter hardships, opposition, questioning of our actions, physical deprivation and hardship, what appears to be consequences of sinful or less than optimum actions, typically our responses end up, as I had mentioned, in one of three things, fighting, fleeing, or freezing. Now again, uh, I'm referring to a response to a call to repent. There are absolutely times in our life, and we should see that perhaps the most notorious illustration for the Christian life is that of fighting. But we want to make sure what we're fighting against. We want to fight against the thing that we should be fighting against, right? There's absolutely fleeing for the Christian. There are times when you should run. Just as fast as you can. That we're not talking about either of those two things today. We're talking strictly about that which Jeremiah is referring to in the book of Lamentations. And that is coming face to face 
with the admonitions of God to turn and repent and to follow Him. And there is but one response that's appropriate, and that is the response of freezing, of standing where you are and taking in what it is that God is telling you, and then to march off and follow Him. Let's look at fighting first. And again, this is one of the most difficult things for any of us to do. I will tell you, it is one of the greatest challenges of my life to proclaim courageously and authoritatively the Word of God and to yet also be a man who's tender and loving and to recognize that I'm imperfect and I'm a sheep just like all the other sheep are. And we find it to be very, very difficult for us to be, on the one hand, a fierce warrior, and on the other hand, someone who can tenderly and softly recognize what it is that God is doing. Would we be a people who can understand that? Who can take on the things of God and the ways of God in the way that Jeremiah is calling his countrymen to? And he's owning his own sin. All of the personal pronouns in the poem in chapter 3 are not they and them. They're we and us and I. Again, as I said, one of the first implications or one of the first things I should say that we are inclined to do when facing hardship and opposition, the questioning of our actions in the midst also of physical deprivation and hardship, is that of fighting. That of fighting. Any first-year lifeguard will tell you that drowning people notoriously attempt to subdue their rescuer. People that are drowning think of one thing, and that is air. And when you've got water in your lungs... You will climb over anything to get to air, including the person that's trying to save you. And submitting to a cross-chest carry in open water is not a thing that seems rational to a person that's drowning. And would that we would have an opportunity to receive the admonition of God to repent and believe in the quiet and glorious simplicity of a beautiful tabernacle. But we don't have that option. Nobody does. Just like the Thessalonians, we receive the word in much affliction. And will we turn? And will we follow in that situation? Can we as a drowning man submit to the one who will rescue us? I draw your attention to a few passages of Scripture Acts chapter 7, verse 51, the Apostle Paul, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. This isn't Paul. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Again, what's being called out here is this idea that God is coming and you're resisting. There is fighting. There is fighting against who? Not against sin. Not against Satan, not against the flesh, but against God. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Submit to God. The right response to God is submit, to freeze, to listen. Yes, you resist the devil, but not God. 1 Peter 5, 8-10 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Will you take it? Will you receive the admonitions of God? Jeremiah's countrymen largely wouldn't. They fought against him. They tried to kill him on several occasions. They imprisoned him. They ran away. They fled. Jeremiah called him. It was this one trick pony. Over and over again. Would you repent? Would you turn to God? Would you look at this one who is for you? He's for you. He's for you. And they fought. Sometimes people describe the application of the Scriptures to their sin as being backed into a corner. And this would indicate that there was a readiness to fight when there should be a readiness to freeze, to submit to God. The typical response to being held accountable to something seems to be fight or flight when it should again be that of submission to God. Our next inclination may be flight. We know that some in Jeremiah's day did flee. They fled to Egypt. They were called not to time and again. They entered into the same pattern that had been entered into time before. But it wasn't to be this time. There are things that we should flee from, but not from God and not from the ways of God. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. James 4.7, already read, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yeah, we can run. Some of us run pretty well. It's not the time to run. It's the time to stand. Submit. Freeze. It's not the time to fight. It's the time to listen. It's the time to exercise that soft heart. To call upon the Lord that we might hear Him. That we might really hear Him. Through the proclamation of His Word. That we might examine ourselves. That's what Jeremiah is readying these people for. Freeze. Recognize being stress-paralyzed is a thing. I'm not talking about that. To obey the Word of God is ultimately to do something, yes. 
And if you've heard anything from me, you will hear do, 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 yes. The Scriptures are a book of praxis, of activity, but we must know what to do. We stand before our commander and we listen for his instruction. And then we march off. We must listen. We must submit. We must sit and submit to God's instruction, figure out what to do and then do it. For sure, knowing what to do from the Word of God or hearing the Word of God and immediately obeying is best. But will we receive it? Will we listen? Will we do the trial work of honestly applying biblical admonition to ourselves? And one of the things that Jeremiah brings up again and again is this idea that it is becoming of creatures to humble themselves, not to run or to fight against the hand of God. It is becoming of creatures. It should be said of us who are made of dirt that we are humble and that we listen. That is our place. That is our place. We exalt pride and manliness and courage. But where's the tender heart? Where's the one who has listened, who sat in the one who's weeping over their own sins? Where is that one? Where is that one who recognizes his own failure and frailty and who also recognizes the strength of Almighty God and His purposes? Where is that one? We should ask the question, where are the men? Yes, we should. But we should also ask the question, where are those who have repented? Where are those who are soft in heart? Where are those who have received the truths of God? Where are those who understand what God is doing? Where are those who have come to a better place of thinking less of themselves and more of God? What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease and he must increase. This is the story of our lives. And that is the joy that we can have. Let's consider a few passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. My point in this passage is to recognize that hostility obviously is fighting against the Lord. For it does not submit to God's law. This mind that is set on the flesh on those fleshly things. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 10.13 For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. These are not commendations. There's no place for smug arrogance. There is a place, and it is fitting for creatures... to be known as those who are humble. Now, let's turn the corner. Let's look at verse 19. This is certainly the turning point for this poem in chapter 3 of Lamentations. Remember my affliction. 
in my wanderings. Jeremiah calls on God to remember his affliction and wanderings. Verses 20 and 21, Jeremiah remembers God's compassion and has hope as he humbly takes in the admonitions of God to repent and walk in his ways. We see here the soft heart. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. As we sing, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is the same word that's used in Proverbs 19.22. We've mentioned this before. Proverbs 19.22, What is desired in a man is steadfast love. Now take note of the lists in Scripture. The Apostle Paul is a list maker. The writer of Proverbs is a list maker too. And in this particular proverb, Proverbs 19.22, he has a list, but it's only got one thing on it. What God desires in a man is steadfast love. It's the same word that he is receiving from the Lord here. Again, he is casting his thoughts on the attributes of God here. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hope in God cannot be frustrated or eclipsed. And this is also our inclination, isn't it? We can't get our eyes off of ourselves. And even, even in the hardest of times, we want to qualify what God can do with our own level of faithfulness. Jeremiah makes no qualification. He's casting all of his thoughts and cares on the object of his faith. Your mercies never cease. Therefore, I am in a good place. Your steadfast love I will trust in. It is there. You will remember me. You know where I am. Verses 25 and 26. Wait for the Lord. Seek Him. Even though God smites His children, He seeks their highest good. Therefore, men should conduct themselves such that God can carry out His highest good in them. And this is one of the things that Jeremiah is getting at here in the Lamentations. Is, am I positioning myself as an individual under God for God to carry out His highest good in me? We understand that justification, that new life in Christ is... Something that God alone does. He initiates the action and He carries it off without asking. But we also know that the rest of our lives with God is synergistic, if you will. It involves our own activity as well as God's. 
And the question that Jeremiah places before his countrymen is, are you daily putting yourself in a position for God to perform in you His highest good? And of course, all the things that they had experienced to this point were for the express purpose of God entering into His highest good for His people. But Jeremiah is saying over and over and over again how his countrymen and himself to some degree have failed at this point. And that's why they are in the challenge that they are. So take it in in verse 22. Again, the steadfast love of God never ceases. It never comes to an end. That's a challenge for a throwaway society. Things that never come to an end. That's a challenge when you live in a disposable world. Think about it. What has God said to you? The Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Without qualification. The mercies of God are new every morning. What do you focus on in your good days and your bad? Jeremiah is casting our thoughts back on the Lord. Men should conduct themselves such that God can carry out His highest good, sitting in silence, not complaining or filling the air with their own thoughts. There's no end to that, is there? Job's term, wind jamming. All of this stuff over and over and over again. What about God? What's the truth about God? That's what we need to hear. Not your cotton-picking theoretical theology. What does God say? Who is God? What has He promised? Where is He today? Are you fitting your own flesh-feeding desires into that which God clearly calls you to? Jeremiah is calling his countrymen back to this. Verse 27, It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. You older men, the point of this passage is not that In your younger days, you had it hard, and now you deserve to have it easy. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, when we bear the yoke as young people, we are more ready to bear the yoke as we get older, and to delight ourselves in the things of God, and to commit ourselves to God. The older we are, the more faithful we should be. The older we are, the more confident in God we should be. The older we are, the less crotchety we should be. 
The older we are, the more tender we should be because we've walked with the Lord more. The older we are, the more commendable to God we should be. The more ready we are to bear the yoke. That's what Jeremiah is saying. But if you're not, that's okay. Begin today. Begin today. This is not a hopeless situation, but a hopeful situation. One of my heroes, Robert E. Lee, when asked by parents how to raise their children, he said this, they must learn to deny themselves. They must learn to deny themselves. That's what Jeremiah is getting at here. So I have a question for you. Have you learned to deny yourself? Now this is a very difficult thing. Made more difficult by the fact that we often live our lives based on little hearts and likes and our Facebook friends and all of these things. You see, because we live in a world that is literally fixated on flesh feeding. And yet God calls us to deny ourselves. He calls upon us to recognize that the real joys and delights in the kingdom of God have to do with loving others well and forgetting ourselves. And in that is fulfillment. Jeremiah is talking to a people who long to be fulfilled, but they demand it on their own terms. And they'll never have it. Never. It will slip through their fingers day after day after day. Because their Creator has made them in a certain way that they insist that they have changed. And they'll do it their way and they'll go their way and it won't go well. Verses 31 through 33, The Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. There's the word again. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. When God causes grief, only His restoration will suffice. The comfort of the world will not suffice, though we try again and again. If God crushes in order to restore, only He can restore. There are no substitutes. This is an important point. I believe Matthew Henry said this. This idea that if God crushes... And again, Jeremiah is recognizing all throughout this lamentation that it is God who is the source of all of this difficulty for them to turn. If He is doing this, then only He can restore. All the chocolate in the world, all the beer in the world, All the video games in the world, all the toys you buy in the world will not suffice. God must restore if He is the one that caused the grief. Verses 39 and 40. Why should we complain about punishment for our sins? Let us test and examine ourselves and return to the Lord. Jeremiah is calling us to have a serious examination, to re- reflect on our past lives. 
we should search and try our own ways. We have plenty of work to do. Have you ever noticed how it seems that other people's faults really get your attention? I mean, have you ever noticed that that you've got a list of three different ways that they can fix their lives? In the back of your mind, have you ever noticed that? And have you ever noticed that in the midst of all of your plans for other people that the, the problems that you have, if you examine your own life, those seem to pale in comparison to the difficulties that others have, that, that really your stuff is no big deal, that people shouldn't really be worried about it at all, but that you've got, you know, again, that God has saved them and you have a wonderful plan for their life. Have you ever thought about that? God saved you and I have a wonderful plan. But one of the points that Jeremiah is making here is that we have plenty of work to do in our own houses. We have plenty of work to do in our own lives. That doesn't mean that we don't love each other well. And certainly this hesed, this idea of steadfast love for us, has to do with a growing desire an application of living more transparently and open, not lying about who we are to ourselves, being open to the sharpening that must occur with brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's work for us to do plenty in our own homes. Self-examination. Not morbid introspection, but nonetheless self-examination that has as its focus the steadfast love and glories of God. Our minds are little factories of creators of reasons why our situation is different than what's described in the Bible. Or why my anger isn't really that big deal. Or why I deserve this indulgence. Or this is why people should think I'm great. Or why don't people think I'm great. Or I'm tired of serving others. Or I really deserve better treatment. Is that where your mind is? There's no way out of that. It's a dark room. And God has locked off all of the escape. He's calling us to submit to Him. To look to Him. To repent and follow Him. Perhaps one of the most tragic things is that Jerusalem was to be the city on a hill for the nations, that they were to be a herald of good news. They were the mouthpiece of God. They were the exemplars of godliness. And oh, how they have fallen. Will we go with God day by day, moment by moment, or will we insist that when we slip and a little sinful self-absorption that it's okay, will we agree with God and enjoy His smiling presence? Or will we insist on our own way and wonder why all isn't well? Let's say it together. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Are you satisfied with the steadfast love of God? Are you satisfied to be laid open by His living Word such that you can enjoy more fully the steadfast love of God? Are you satisfied to affirm your own sinfulness and need not only of a Savior and justifying faith, but of a continual union with the Lord Jesus such that you can be used as Jerusalem was to be used in its day as a city on a hill. Let us pray.